Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. God is good and all the time. I'm glad to be with you today on Father's Day. We are um, looking at the series called The Church Is where we examine what it means to be the church. And each week we fill in that statement with something different. The church is a place of worship or something like that. Well, this week we're talking about how the church is fathered by God. That God is absolutely committed to father us. He cares more about us than we care about ourselves. He's in the details of our lives more than we are. He has every hair on our head numbered. Uh, He will never leave you or forsake you. He's not ashamed of us. He loves us. He is our Father, and He's committed to Father us. That's good news. If you know Jesus Christ, that's not just something that you're imagining. That is your reality, that the church, the people of God, believers are fathered by God. He loves us, and He's committed to us. And one of the things that He's committed to is giving us His wisdom. Uh, Giving us His wisdom. I know someone in the church, whenever I ask them, what can I pray for you for? They, they say wisdom. And how many of you feel that need, that you need wisdom in every area of your life? Well, God is committed to give us wisdom. Uh, the book of James chapter 1 says that the Lord gives wisdom, that God gives wisdom without finding fault, which means that if you already messed up, he doesn't hold it against you. He just gives you the wisdom you need to correct the situation and move on. And that's good news, because if you're like me, you make mistakes. Sometimes you make foolish mistakes. But God is committed to give us his wisdom. That's what it means for him to be our father. And so today we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs is a book of wisdom, a book of little pithy sayings. They're they're not promises, they're, they're principles, and they're full of wisdom. They're full of wisdom and what it means to walk with God. We're going to look at Proverbs chapter 3, Uh, which is a father giving wisdom to his son and actually talking a little bit about his own instruction, his own wisdom, the commands that he might give. And and we can sort of picture that coming maybe from our own father or from God as father, that he would give us his wisdom so that we might live the fullest life possible as his child. So let's read Proverbs chapter 3, 1, verse 12. It starts off and says, My son... Don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commands, for they will bring you many days a full life and well-being. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will find favor and high regard with God and people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him, and he will make your paths straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, 
just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. The word of God. Father, be with the preaching of your word this morning. I don't know if you ever got in trouble in school and had to write sentences. Do you remember writing sentences? There's a picture there of Bart Simpson, and it says, I will not do anything bad ever again. Now, maybe you had to write the sentence, I will not talk out of turn, or I will do my homework on time, or I will not be late, or I will not uh, be mean to anybody. Uh, I didn't have to write too many sentences in school, but I do remember one time that I did have to write sentences. I, I got in trouble just once. That's it. I only got in trouble once in school. And this particular time, the teacher told me that I had to write sentences. And I I really don't remember um, what it was about. Like, even though I wrote the sentences over and over again, I don't remember what I said. It was, I will not something. But I do remember the trick I learned to make those sentences easier. Uh, Do you guys remember carbon paper? Carbon paper was something you could put under paper. And it was like this purple sheet. And you could write on it. And the the indention would go through the original paper into the carbon paper onto a third piece of paper, and you would get double what you wrote. So that's what I remember from writing sentences. And maybe you learned a trick like that when you got in trouble, or maybe you learned this trick where you have multiple pens. That's one way to get it over quick. Uh, The truth is, you know, writing sentences it kind of feels a little bit like busy work. We walk away just like me, and you might not remember exactly what even the sentence meant. You just remember that you had to do it. And I think when it comes to God's instruction and God's commands, we can treat it a little bit like writing sentences. It's busy work. It's just something that we really don't want to do, and if we can figure out a way to get out of it, we will. Uh, We don't view God's commands as his fatherly wisdom towards us. We don't view his instructions as a way to live. Rather, we almost see God's instructions as getting in the way of how we want to live. We don't see God's correction as something from his love, but rather something that brings shame. We look at his wisdom, we look at his instructions, we look at his commands, and it just kind of feels like something tedious we have to do rather than something that we delight in. It feels like writing sentences. We think actually that wisdom somehow lies in getting around the wisdom. Like, just like me writing sentences, it's like, is there a way to make this any easier? Well, that's where the wisdom is, in making it easier, not in actually learning in the correction. But God is our Father. He's full of wisdom. And he wants us to know his wisdom. He desires that we trust him as a wise father who has our best in mind. And what that looks like for us in this passage is that we dedicate ourselves to his instruction, that we defer to his perspective, and that we delight, yes, delight in his correction. Let's look at that deeper at our father's desire. In verse one, it starts off by saying, my son, Don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commands. You remember being a kid and your parents told you to do something and you had the great excuse of, I forgot, right? In our culture, that's almost an excusable excuse, right? If someone forgets, 
then we can't really hold them accountable. We can't really hold them responsible. I forgot. It's almost that we've become victimized by forgetfulness. Uh, But sometimes it's not really forgetfulness. Sometimes we just lose conviction over something that God has told us to do or not to do. Conviction is like this clear thought in a weight in our spirit where we see it God's way and we feel it God's way. But we lose that in the midst of pain and in the midst of pleasure. When life gets painful, we begin to feel the pain more than we do God's conviction, and then we forget God's conviction. When pleasure is in our path, that pleasure outweighs what we once felt about God's conviction, and then we submit to the pleasure rather than remembering God's instruction. And that becomes a smokescreen for us. We end up in this place where we go, I don't quite remember what God says, I just know that my heart wants what it wants, and I got to follow through with what my heart wants. But did you see how intentional we're to be, my son. Don't forget. Don't forget my teaching. Do whatever it takes to not forget God's instruction. Don't just follow your heart. Let your heart keep my commands. Father, God desires that you and I be absolutely dedicated to his instruction, that we be proactive with what he teaches us Uh, that you and I be dynamic with his wisdom, that we don't just sit there and let it be static, that we actually take it and implement it in our lives. Look at how it says it in verse three. It says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Those are strong verbs. Bind this around your neck. Tie around your heart. But it's not just saying to to take God's rules and bind them. It's saying to take God's character as well. Did you notice it said steadfast love and faithfulness? The very core of who God is. In fact, when God reveals himself to Moses after he has freed Israel from Egypt, these are the very things that God tells Moses, this is who I am. In Exodus 34, 5 through 8, If you can put that up for me. The Lord descends in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. That's God's personal name. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and here it is, and abounding in steadfast love and what? Faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. As we dedicate ourselves to God's commands, one of the things that happens is we forget his commands when we forget who he is. And his commands are not separated from his character. God gives no busy work. Everything that he tells us to do springs out of who he is. And what the, the author is telling us here in this passage is that when you get indifferent and apathetic with obeying God, when you lose dedication to his instruction, don't just not forget the, don't just forget the commands. Please don't forget who God is. Remind yourself 
My God is faithful. My God is full of loyal love. This is my God, and this is what my God commands me to do. The dedication comes from not necessarily trying hard, but remembering the character of our God, remembering his loyal love, remembering his faithfulness, so that we are proactive with turning away from what he says is evil. In verse 7, it says, turn away from evil. It's pretty clear cut. When you see evil in your path, do not do it. Turn away from it. I know that there are times when we have engaged with things that the Lord says are wrong. And down the road, when we experience the consequences of our own foolish actions, we look at God and say, God, why didn't you stop me? This is God trying to stop us. If there's evil, turn away from it. We cannot blame God when we don't listen to his instruction and we, we, we end up in the bad consequences for the very thing he was warning us against. When the writer says, turn away from evil, it is God saying, turn away from evil. The problem is in our hearts, we aren't dedicated to his commands and we begin to negotiate with sin. We begin to negotiate with sin. But, but what the author is telling us is here is, is, listen, when you begin to lose perspective on your life or on evil or on sin or on righteousness, defer to God's perspective. Don't just dedicate yourself to God's instruction. Defer to his perspective. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. We have so much knowledge at our fingertips. We can look up anything, anything that we want to on the internet, and we assume that that means we are wise. Now, we know some stuff, but we are not wise. God is full of wisdom that he's willing to share with you and me without finding fault. But it requires us to defer to him and what he says is good and true and right. See, the funny thing is, is most of us, even as we look at our lives, we might say, you know, I know, I know some stuff about life. I've been through some stuff. I've got some perspective. I've, I've got some stuff to share because of my life. But if you look back on your life 10 years ago, you'd look back 10 years ago and you go, I didn't know anything back then. I was making some dumb decisions 10 years. I thought I, 10 years ago, I thought I knew something, but I really didn't. What does that mean about now? <laughs> 10 years from now, what will you say about the decisions you're currently making? We so often defer to our own perspective, assuming that we're wise, but it tells us, do not be wise in your own eyes, Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And fear the Lord doesn't mean that we run around being scared of God. Oh, is God going to zap me today? I meet people who are like making foolish decisions and, they, and then they kind of go, I, I, I'm just waiting for God to zap me. Lightning's going to strike me out of the sky. Now, I, I think there is a sense where we should be worried about the consequences of sin. There's a reason why sin is not busy work. It's actually not the way God designed life to work. But when he says, fear the Lord, what he means is something more like when you stand in front of the grandness of the ocean. When you stand in front of the ocean, you're full of wonder and mystery and appropriate fear. You know that you are not in control of the ocean. You know that there are certain times and places that you cannot swim. You know that it is dangerous to go against the rules of nature in something as vast and grand as the ocean. 
That's what it means to fear God. It means to stand before him with amazement and wonder and realize that he is much grander than you. You do not set the rules. He does. He is much greater than you. And yet in that vastness, you can trust him. The real heart of this passage is verse five and six where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him and he will make your paths straight. I love that line that says, do not rely on your own understanding because that's just human to rely on our own perspective to rely on what we can see, to rely on what we know, to rely on what we've learned from the past. Yet, you and I know that we are limited by time and space. We don't know what's gonna happen 10 minutes from now, even in our own lives. We're limited by space, we're just here. You're not anywhere else, you're here. But God is not limited by time. God is outside of time. Past, present, future, he never changes. Not only that, God is not limited by geography. He's in this place with us, but he is in every place. And you begin to understand that you should not rely on your own understanding, not because it's sort of like evil or or something like that, but just to make sense. If there's someone that has more perspective than you, you defer to them. And what the writer is telling us today is do not rely on your own understanding because you can trust the Lord, that's God's personal name, who was and is and is to come, who isn't limited by time and space, who isn't limited by humanity like we are, and he's good and he loves you. It just makes practical sense to trust the Lord, even even when he disciplines you. Even when he disciplines you. Verse 11 says, don't despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. Now, when we go against God's ways, when we break his commands, when we disregard his wisdom, sometimes that comes from foolish arrogance. Like, we just want to do our thing. I'm not going to listen to God. I'm going to do it. And there's a real sense where there's a warning here. But I also think that sometimes we despise the Lord's instruction because of confusion. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, If you've grown up in the church, you no doubt have seen hypocrisy and legalism. And what happens is if you have been marred by hypocrisy and legalism, you might get the Lord's instruction confused with man's interpretation of the Lord's instruction. And that's real. But it's up to you to to kind of discern between what is of humans and what is of God. Let let me give you an example. Like if we're driving in the car and all the time I'm driving, I yell to the back of my backseat where my kids are and I go, never, ever, ever, ever break the speed limit. And the whole time I'm breaking the speed limit. And then when they get their license, I'm calling them, don't break the speed limit, don't break the speed limit. And they know that I'm a hypocrite if I always break the speed limit, and let's say that I break the speed limit really bad, well, at some point, they're gonna get tired of hearing that law, that command, that wisdom, don't break the speed limit. And they're gonna just see it as hypocritical and maybe legalistic, which it is. 
Yet, you and I know, just because it's hypocritical of me to keep saying that, not doing it, there still is wisdom in not breaking the speed limit. The law's still there. Uh, If you've seen a nasty crash from someone speeding, you know that there is wisdom in not breaking the speed limit, even though I may have been a hypocrite when I said it. And as we look at God's commands, we we have to be willing not to just write off God's commands because we've seen them implemented hypocritically in the past. God's commands still stand. An example might be what we call purity culture in the church. Purity culture was the church's interpretation of how to be sexually moral. That kind of peaked in the late 80s and 90s. And I mean, I grew up during that time. I remember we were going to camp and they, and they kind of talked about how to remain sexually abstinent which was a command that God gives. But there was something that got twisted within purity culture where people started adding rules and laws to God's rules and laws that weren't actually part of God's rules and laws. So then sexual purity became something more than just what God said. It became like, uh, I kiss dating goodbye, if you remember that book and you grew up in like the 90s, you remember that. Um, and, and God never said anything about dating. He said stuff about sexual purity and about sacrificial love, but then dating and the rules around dating became very legalistic, and people got turned off. Um, not only that, but when people failed sexually, when they didn't live up to God's standard, this purity culture created a culture where people couldn't really get back to God. They had failed, and they were out, and that was the final word. This happened in the church. But but here's the thing. Some of you might hear that and despise purity culture. Yet, the Lord has commands about purity. Still, even though they were hypocritical, even though purity culture was legalistic, the Lord still has commands about purity. And I find that sometimes people get confused about that as, as the word deconstruction is really a buzzword and a hot word now. I really find that people are disenculturating rather than deconstructing. What I mean by that is people might get really mad at purity culture, but throw away God's commands in that. In fact, I read an article this morning by someone who was attacking purity culture, and then at the very end, she basically said, so I'm not going to follow God's commands. I'm like, well, wait a minute. A bad implementation of God's commands doesn't mean that you should reject God's commands. It means that you should reject the bad implementation of God's commands. We shouldn't despise God's commands. We should still defer to his perspective. And I'll I'll be honest with you, the church can be hypocritical about a lot of things. We do not get it right, and I will put myself in that category. But just because we fail, please don't despise what God commands you to do, whether it's with sex or with money, or with your devotionals. The Lord loves you, and the Lord wants to give you his wisdom. And just because there's been failure in your past, try and discern the difference between a bad implementation of God's instruction and God's instruction. I knew a girl who couldn't read one chapter of the Bible. She couldn't read Romans 12, because as a child, her parents had hammered that chapter into her over and over and over again. And so we didn't know that. And we we're like, let's memorize some verses from the Bible. And we picked that chapter and she like shriveled up. You know, she had this reaction. And I got where she was coming from. 
At the same time, the words in Romans 12 aren't bad. They're good. They're beautiful. They're wonderful because it's God's instruction to us. And, And yet it would take her some time to separate a bad implementation of God's instruction with God's instruction itself. I think that we get confused. We get confused because we assume that when God corrects us, the main thing we're to feel is shame. The main thing we're to feel is fear. The main thing that when God corrects us, we should focus on is our failure. Right, God? That's what you want me to see. Fear, shame, and failure. And yet that's not what God says at all. God says that in the midst of his correction of us, the main thing we should feel is his love. Is his love. Look at this, for the Lord disciplines the one, not that he doesn't care about, not that he's angry with, but the one he loves. The Lord brings his fatherly correction into our life because he loves us. And when we ignore his discipline, we are ignoring his love. We are ignoring his commitment to us. Because his willingness to step into our lives and say, hey, let me correct you, comes from a place of love, not wanting to bring us shame. It's a place of love, not wanting to call us fear. It's a place of love, not wanting us to focus on our failure. That's why James 1 says he gives wisdom without finding fault. You ever cut your dad's lawn and you did it the wrong way? which I probably did a couple times. But my father would always show me the right way to do it without belittling me for doing it the wrong way. God is like that. Even in your errors, even in your failures, you are welcome to come to him as a fool and say, I need your wisdom. I want to defer to you. I want to learn to delight in your correction because ultimately, God's commands are not about getting in the way of you living a full life. God's commands are not busy work. God's commands aren't something that's just meant to get in your way. Rather, God's commands are to lead you to the fullest life possible. If you noticed in in this passage, several times the author tells us the benefits of heeding the instruction the benefits of listening to the wisdom, the benefits of letting God's instruction turn you. He says things like this, then your barns will be completely filled. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. Then you will find favor and high regard with God and with people. For they will bring you many days a full life in this last word and well-being. Well-being. That is the Hebrew word shalom. In other words, when we heed God's instruction, when we listen to him, when we adjust our life, when we delight in his correction, we're heading towards the fullness of life. We're heading towards the fullest life possible. And when life goes sideways, it's not time to disregard God's commands. It is time to lean in and recommit yourself to his instruction. 
It is time to get perspective on his wisdom and say, I know this is not busy work. I know this is not getting in the way of me having life. Rather, God is leading me to life in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the tragedy, in the midst of the hardship. And the reason we know this is because his discipline to us does not come from a place of his anger, but a place of delight. Just as a father disciplines the son in whom he kind of likes, in whom he puts up with. No. Just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. The father, our father, is our father because God poured out all his wrath on Jesus. All his anger against sin, all his anger against your failures and your foolishness was poured out on Christ when he went to the cross for you. And therefore, his interaction in your life, when you're foolish, when you're sinful, when you mess up, isn't based on his wrath and punishment. Rather, it is to correct you because he delights in you, because you are part of his son, Jesus, in whom he delights. All of God's wrath against sin, if you know Jesus, was poured on Jesus himself. And therefore, you are a beloved child. And so when, when God corrects you, know that he's doing it not because he's trying to trip you up. Not because he's like, oh, I got him this time. But rather, because you are the child, you are the son, you are the daughter whom he loves who he sent his son Jesus to die for. And friends, when you begin to understand that perspective, you will see that his commands, they're not busy work. His instruction isn't getting in the best way, in the way of our, your best life. His correction isn't about your shame. It's rather that God desires that we trust him because he sent his son to die for us. He is a wise father who has our best Let's pray. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.